So the reading today is that of a book that we've been going through called Ethics for the New Millennium. It's by the Dalai Lama, the Holiness, Dalai Lama, His Holiness. Um, and we are on chapter eight today. Thanks for coming. Um, like I said, I know you had somewhere else to be. And I appreciate for being here. You could have been anywhere else, but you chose to be here. So, welcome. Thank you. Chapter 8. The Ethic of Compassion. We noted earlier that all the world's major religions stress the importance of cultivating love and compassion. In the Buddhist philosophical, philosophical tradition, different levels of attainment are described. At a basic level, compassion... The Nyingje is understood mainly in terms of empathy. Our ability to enter into and to some extent share others' suffering. But Buddhists and perhaps others believe that this can be developed to such a degree that not only does our compassion arise without any effort, but it is unconditional, undifferentiated, and universal in scope. A feeling of int intimacy toward all other sentient beings, including, of course, those who would harm us, is generated, which is likened in the liter in the literature to love a mother, to the love a mother has for her only child. A feeling of sorry, I'm going to read that again. A feeling of intimacy toward all other sentient beings, including, of course, those who would harm us, is generated, which is likened in the literature to the love a mother has for her only child. Okay. <clears throat> Sorry, I have to get comfortable or else this isn't going to work. And I'll just be thinking about it the whole time. All right. But this sense of equanimity toward all others is not seen as an end in itself. Rather, it is seen as the springboard to a love still greater. Because our capacity for empathy is innate, and because the ability to reason is also an innate faculty, compassion shares the characteristics of consciousness itself. The potential we have to develop it is therefore stable and continuous. It is not a resource which can be used up, as water is used up when we boil it. And though it can be described in terms of activity, it is not like a physical activity which we train for, like jumping, where once we reach a certain height, we can go no further. On the contrary, when we enhance our sensitivity towards others' suffering through deliberately opening ourselves up to it, it is believed that we can gradually extend out compassion to the point where the individual feels so moved by even the subtlest suffering of others that they come to have an overwhelming sense of responsibility toward those others. This causes the one who is compassionate to dedicate themselves entirely to helping others overcome both their suffering and the causes of their suffering. In Tibetan, this ultimate level of attainment is called Ning Jig Chenmo, literally great compassion. Now, I'm not suggesting that each individual must attain these advanced states of spiritual development in order to lead an ethically wholesome life. I have described Ning Jig Chenmo not because it is a precondition of ethical conduct, but rather because I believe that pushing the logic of compassion 
to the highest level can act as a powerful inspiration. If we can just keep the aspiration to develop Nyingje Chenmo or great compassion as an ideal, it will naturally have a significant impact on our outlook. Based on the simple recognition that just as I do, so do all others desire to be happy and not suffer, it will serve as a constant reminder against selfishness and partiality. It will remind us that there is little to be gained from being kind and generous because we hope to win something in return. It will remind us that actions motivated by the desire to create a good name for ourselves are still selfish, however much they may appear to be acts of kindness. It will also remind us that there is nothing exceptional about the acts of charity towards those we already feel close to. And it will help us to recognize that the bias we naturally, naturally feel toward our family and friends is actually a highly unreliable thing on which to base ethical conduct. If we reserve ethical conduct for those whom we feel close to, the danger is that we will neglect our responsibilities towards those outside the circle. Why is this? So long as the individuals in question continue to meet our expectations, all is well. But should they fail to do so, someone we consider a dear friend one day can become our sworn enemy the next. As we saw earlier, we have a tendency to react badly to all who threaten fulfillment of our cherished desires. Though they, may not be our, though they may be our closest relations. For this reason, compassion and mutual respect offer a much more solid base, basis for our relations with others. This is also true of partnerships. If our love for someone is based largely on attraction, whether it be their looks or some other superficial characteristic, our feelings for that person are liable over time to evaporate. When they lose the quality we found alluring, or, we, or when we find ourselves no longer satisfied by it, the situation can change completely. This despite their being the same person. This is why relationships based purely on attraction are almost always unstable. On the other hand, when we begin to perfect our compassion, neither the other's appearance nor their behavior affects our underlying attitude. Consider, too, that habitually our feelings towards others depend very much on their circumstances. Most people, when they see someone who is handicapped, feel sympathetic toward that person. But, when they, but then when they see others who are wealthier or better educated or better placed socially, they immediately feel envious and competitive towards them. Our negative feelings prevent us from seeing the sameness of ourselves and all others. We forget that just like us, whether fortunate or unfortunate, distant or near, they desire to be happy and not to suffer. The struggle is thus to overcome these feelings of partiality. Certainly, developing a genuine compassion for our loved ones is the obvious and appropriate place to start. The impact our actions have on our close ones will generally be much greater than on others, and therefore our responsibilities towards them are greater. Yet we need to recognize that ultimately, there are no grounds for discriminating in their favor, in this sense, we are all in the same position as a doctor confronted by 10 patients suffering from the same illness. They are each equally deserving of treatment. The reader should not suppose that what is being advocated here is a state of detached indifference, however. The further essential challenge as we begin to extend our compassion towards all others is to maintain the same level of intimacy as we feel towards those closest to us. In other words, what is being suggested is that we need to strive for even-handedness in our approach toward all others, a level ground into which we can plant the seed of Ningje Chenmo of great love and compassion. If we can begin 
to relate to others on the basis of such equanimity, our compassion will not depend on the fact that so and so is my husband, my wife, my relative, my friend. Rather, a feeling of closeness towards all others can be developed based on the simple recognition that just like myself, all wish to be happy and to avoid suffering. In other words, we will start to relate to others on the basis of their sentient nature. Again, we can think of this in terms of an ideal, one which is immensely difficult to attain. But for myself, I find it one which is profoundly inspiring and helpful. Let us now consider the role of compassionate love and kind-heartedness in our daily lives. Does the ideal of developing it to the point where it is unconditional mean that we must abandon our own interests entirely? Not at all. In fact, it is the best way of serving them. Indeed, it could even be said to constitute the wisest course for fulfilling self-interest. For if it is correct, and those qualities such as love, patience, tolerance, and forgiveness are what happiness consists in, and if it is also correct that Ningje, or compassion, as I have defined it, is both the source and the fruit of these qualities, then we more, then we, then the more we are compassionate, the more we provide for our own happiness. Thus, any idea that concern for others, though a noble quality, is a matter for our private lives only, is simply short-sighted. Compassion belongs to every sphere of activity, including, of course, the workplace. Here, though, I must acknowledge the existence of a perception, shared by many, it seems, that compassion is, if not actually an impediment, at least irrelevant to professional life. Personally, I would argue that not only is it relevant, but that when compassion is lacking, our activities are in danger of becoming destructive. This is because when we ignore the question of the impact our actions have on others' well-being, inevitably we end up hurting them. The ethic of compassion helps provide the necessary foundation and motivation for both restraint and the cultivation of virtue. When we begin to develop a genuine appreciation of the value of compassion, our outlook on others begins automatically to change. This alone can serve as a powerful influence on the conduct of our lives. When, for example, the temptation to deceive others arises, our compassion for them will prevent us from entertaining the idea. And when we realize that our work itself is in danger of being exploited to the detriment of others, compassion will cause us to disengage from it. So to take an imaginary case of a scientist whose research seems likely to be a source of suffering, they will recognize this and act accordingly, even if this means abandoning the project. I do not deny that genuine problems can arise when we dedicate ourselves to the ideal of compassion. In the case of a scientist who felt unable to continue in the direction their work was taking them, this could have profound consequences both for themselves and for their families. Likewise, those engaged in the caring professions, in medicine, counseling, social work, and so on, or even those looking after someone at home, may sometimes become so exhausted by their duties that they feel overwhelmed. Constant exposure to suffering, coupled occasionally with the feeling of being taken for granted, can induce feelings of helplessness and even despair. Or it can happen that individuals may find themselves performing outwardly generous actions merely for the sake of it, simply going through the motions, as it were. Of course, this is better than nothing, but when left unchecked, this can lead to insensitivity towards others' suffering. If this starts to happen, it is best to disengage for a short while and make a deliberate effort, effort to reawaken the sensitivity. In this, it can be helpful to remember that despair is never a solution. It is rather the ultimate failure. 
Therefore, as the Tibetan expression has it, even if the rope breaks nine times, we must splice it back together a tenth time. In this way, even if ultimately we do fail, at least there will be no feelings of regret. And when we combine this insight with a, uh, with a clear appreciation of our potential to benefit others, we find that we can begin to restore hope and confidence. Some people may object to this ideal on the grounds that by entering into others' suffering, we bring suffering on ourselves. To an extent, this is true, but I suggest that there is an important qualitative distinction to be made between experiencing one's own suffering and experiencing suffering in the course of sharing in others. In the case of one's own suffering, given that it is involuntary, there is a sense of oppression. It seems to come from outside of us. By contrast, sharing in someone else's suffering must be at some level, must at some level involve a degree of voluntariness, which itself is indicative of indicative of certain inner strength. For this reason, the disturbance it may cause is considerably less likely to paralyze us than our own suffering. Of course, even as an ideal, the notion of developing unconditional compassion is daunting. Most people, including myself, must struggle even to reach the point where putting others' interests on a par with our own becomes easy. We should not allow this to put us off, however, and while undoubtedly there will be obstacles on the way to developing a genuinely warm heart, there is a deep consolation of knowing that in doing so we are creating the conditions for our own happiness. As I mentioned earlier, the more we truly desire to benefit others, the greater the strength and confidence we develop, and the greater the peace and happiness we experience. If this still seems unlikely, it is worth asking ourselves how else are how else we are to do so. With violence and aggression? Of course not. With money? Perhaps up to a point, but no further. But with love, by sharing in others' suffering, by recognizing ourselves clearly in all others, especially those who are disadvantaged and those whose rights are not respected, by helping them to be happy, yes. Through love, through kindness, through compassion, we establish understanding between ourselves and others. This is how we forge unity and harmony. Compassion and love are not mere luxuries. As the source, as the source both of inner and external peace, they are fundamental to the continued survival of our species. On the one hand, they, con they constitute non-violence and action. On the other, they are the source of all spiritual qualities, of forgiveness, tolerance, and all the virtues. Moreover, they are the very thing that gives meaning to our activities and makes them constructive. There's nothing amazing about being highly educated. There's nothing amazing about being rich. Only when the individual has a warm heart do these attributes become worthwhile. So to those who say that the Dalai Lama is being unrealistic in advocating this ideal of unconditional love, I urge them to experiment with it nonetheless. They will discover that when we reach beyond the confines of narrow self-interest, our hearts become filled with strength. Peace and joy become our constant companion. It breaks down barriers of every kind in the end, and in the end destroys the notion of my interest as independent from others' interests. But most important, so far as ethics is concerned, where love of one's neighbor, affection, kindness, and compassion live, we find that ethical conduct is automatic. Ethically wholesome actions arise naturally in the context of compassion.